Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast and I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, Anna Wintour has described this week's guest as fearless and after meeting her, I tend to agree with Anna. With a career path that began by writing news reports on Italia 90 for her parents aged nine, leading to grown-up jobs at the BBC and CNN in January of this year, Cork woman Samantha Barry became only the eighth editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine in its history. Samantha counts Amal Clooney as a close friend. She knew her before George was even a twinkle in Amal's eye and she lives a very glamorous life in New York City working at Condé Nast HQ at One World Trade Centre at the bottom of Manhattan Island. But she gets home to Ireland as much as possible and I was delighted to meet her on one such trip this week when she gave a speech at Unpost's annual early bird breakfast at the Ivy restaurant in Dublin. Glamour has been in circulation since 1939 when it billed itself as a magazine for women with jobs, and recently Samantha took the bold move of making it a primarily digital operation with a couple of special print editions throughout the year. In this business, it's always a bit worrying to hear that a publication is moving away from print, so I was really interested to find out more about that decision and about her plans for Glamour as a digital product, including an upcoming investigative podcast called Broken Hearts, which launches on December 8th and which sounds fascinating. We also spoke about how Samantha came to land the job at Glamour and of course I couldn't help but ask her about her celebrity friends and we also talked about Repeal the Eighth and how proud she was of the campaign as a young Irish immigrant. Look, we talked a lot about loads of things but I began by asking her to take us on a whistle-stop tour of how she ended up at Glamour magazine. So I started, I first of all, just loved media in Ireland. And I brought that up this morning that, you know, I just always wanted to be a reporter or a journalist. I loved media. I loved looking at Anne Doyle and reading Veronica Guerin and these amazing women in media in Ireland, which honestly, when you leave the country, you realize how lucky you are in all of the women that we have in this country. And that have been amazing. Anyway, I started my career in RT, but, you know, not on the six o'clock news. It was overnights on 2FM, um, writing and reading the news for the people that were listening at 2am in the morning, trying desperately not to mispronounce things. Um, and if I did, you always heard from it. There was somebody listening that would write in. Um, so I worked at RTE and I did overnights on 2FM and Radio 1. And I did, I eventually graduated to either late night in morning Ireland or early morning and I would be the researcher. So calling the politicians late at night, getting them out of bed and I, making sure that they'd agree to uh, work in the morning uh, to come on the show. So I worked on Morning Ireland. I worked on the Marion Finucane show. I was always freelance in RTE, which was interesting. And somebody, I was sitting next to some RTE people today, and um, I was like, I went for a staff job twice and I never got it, but 
I'm okay now with that decision. <laughs> I think you, yeah, yeah. Think that was a great thing that happened. Yeah, to you. yeah. That didn't happen to you. <laughs> um, so I worked at RTE and then I worked at Newstalk. I was Eamon Keane's reporter, which I really enjoyed actually because it was the first time I think I had gone, and I was still very young in my career, but I got to do stories that I really cared about. Um, not that I didn't get to do them in RTE, but you're lower down the totem pole, so you would get to you get sent, sent to the science fair and you'd be sent to do the kicker story and. Um, when I went to News Talk, I got to do the stories I really cared about. I got to go around and tell stories about like uh, some of the worst schools in Ireland. I did an investigation into um, the security in our psychiatric units. Um, um, and I got to tell all these stories for radio, which I loved. And when I talk to people in America about working at News Talk, they, they're fascinated by it because I would tell the story that I would get up at six o'clock in the morning and wherever my producer said the story was, I could get there by 12, record a package, edit something in my car and do a live by lunchtime. And the fact that it could be anywhere in the country, I think when I talk to people in America, they're like, no, no, wait, I don't understand. And I was like, it doesn't matter where it was in Ireland. I could get there by lunchtime and I could have a story ready to go. I never so, thought of yeah, that. Yeah, I was before. a lunchtime reporter. Can I make a little detour back to Balancholic for a yeah. second? Because you, you talk very well about kind of from an early age, eight or nine, uh, that you would watch Italia 90 at that Na- time. Yeah, gosh. Which we all remember. Loved it. And tell us what you used to do, which sort of was a harbinger for things so, to come. So, yeah, my brother tells the story, and I love to repeat it. it was, so it was 1990, um, so I was like eight or nine, and as as I was and my family was, everybody was gripped by, like, Italia 90 fever. I'm um, from a very close family. My brother's a year younger, my sister's a year older. And the five of us would watch it at home. My parents aren't really pub goers, so we'd watch it at home and get really excited about what was happening in, um, with the Irish team. But I would watch, watch it with a pen and a notebook, and I would write notes throughout the whole thing. And then at the end of the match, I'd go upstairs to my bedroom, which I shared with my sister, and I would write a report, and I'd come back, and I would do my TV report about Packy Bonner to my parents and my brother and sister, who lovingly indulged me. But it was, you know, I think I when they tell the story around family tables and stuff, it's like that, like everybody knew Samantha wanted to be in media. And when you're eight and you're doing TV reports to your family about Italia 90, I think you kind of really set your path in motion. Um, so it's nice because I don't think I ever wanted to be anything else. My, like my media jobs have changed. I've been in broadcast. I've been in TV. I've been in digital and social. And now I'm working at, uh, as editor in chief of a publishing brand a title that does all of those things um but I always wanted to be in media which is kind of nice when I look back at it I don't know if you know I didn't ever want to be anything else I know my dad wanted me to be a teacher I think he still harbors that he comes from a family of um, women that are principals and teachers so there's definitely part of my dad that would still love if I was a teacher but yeah it was not my my path Tell us about leaving Ireland because did, was it a case, and I'm always curious about this in terms of people who end up, mm-hmm. like yourself, Irish people who go off and they, they really carve out uh, a space for themselves somewhere else on a more global mm-hmm. level. Did Ireland feel too small? Did it always feel like your ambition and your ideas for what you wanted to do needed to kind of have a bigger platform? It, uh, I don't think it felt too small. It felt like I wasn't getting there fast enough. And what I mean by that is I really wanted to grow and I think sometimes especially in media in Ireland it feels like it's it, it takes a long time to get to where you want and I was very and I'm not afraid to say it because I've said it to people in America like ambition is not a dirty word for a girl and a young woman in particular I was very ambitious and I thought that I wanted to grow and I didn't see it happening fast enough necessarily in Ireland and that's why 
I think I, I, I'm, I'm a runner rather than a walker. And I just, I, I, I think it wasn't necessarily the size, it was the pace that made me leave. Um, and my ability to, to grow. Um, I told a story this morning, which I'll repeat in a, um, a little bit, which was when I walked into RT, I was like, oh, who's the Southwest correspondent and can I have that job? And it was Pascal She. Now he's still the Southwest editor. I saw him on the TV last night. Um, but the, the, the reality, no, but what you actually oh, no. said, <laughs> I was like, well, maybe Pascal Sheehy will die, and I can get his. Job. I know, or everybody else will will go up. On Pascal, I love you. Please don't take that as an insult. But what I meant by that was it's like, a compliment. it was it was a compliment. I was like, he's got this amazing job that I would like one day. I wonder how long it would take me to get there, and. Um, the answer was you were never. And never, Pascal is still there. Yeah, yeah. Job, you would be still um, there. And so that for me was, you know, I was like, how can I, how can I continue to grow? And one of the things I do like, I loved about London, but probably more about New York is there is the, there's not a defined path for your career. There is this mobility between media companies, and if you're good at your job and you show ambition and you and you try to do more, you can grow. And for me, I think one of the things that I'm often asked, like, especially for young women, is like, what's your, your career advice? And mine is never to be defined by the role that you're actually in. And so when I was at the BBC, I was a TV producer, but that wasn't what I did. I wanted, I did a lot in front of the camera and I did, um, I did a lot with Facebook and I did a lot with social and digital. So I was not defined by the fact that my job description was I was going to produce TV. Um, same at CNN when I moved to run social media there in 2014. It was probably a much uh, narrower context of what somebody that would run social media at CNN would do, right? You would come in and run the team that would do maybe the Facebook and Twitter. My, I grew that role into something that was like 45 people, we won awards, it was across, it was 24-7. And because I was never fully defined by the role and a little bit probably brazen, which a lot of pe Irish people can be, a little brazen about, like, I'm going to be more than that role. So for me, I think leaving Ireland, and I remember when I left as well, because I remember the couple of months beforehand, I, there was two stories that I was doing ex extensively, and it was 2007, end of 2006, 2007. And I did a lot of reporting around the Ryan report, which honestly upset me an awful lot. Like, it was very upsetting. And I'd got, it, the recession had started in Ireland, so that six o'clock text from my producer more often than not had become, go to this factory, it's closing down, we want you to talk to people that have just lost their jobs. And that, I think there was six months of that, and I was like, oh, I don't know, I, I, I want to do more, and this is, this is kind of, this is getting me down a little bit. And it's been interesting, actually, to come back to Ireland, because I left in 2007 at the start of the recession, and sometimes when I came back in 2009, 2010, I was like, oh, mm. people are like, it's like only having wine at home, no going to dinner. And now <laughs> it feels like there's, I, I don't know, there's like, I, even this week, I was like, it feels like there's, there's, there's the money's back. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, it's definitely a bit boomier around yeah, here. Yeah, a bit so. boomier, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, said, you talk very well about um, the curiosity that you have as a journalist and a storyteller, but also about how people cons were consuming uh, mm. these stories. And in that way, kind of, I think you were, and you've shown to be a bit of ahead of your time, a little bit ahead of the curve, where you were looking at people, when you were in the BBC, you were yeah. looking at people on their phones consuming their media, whereas perhaps the BBC, uh, I'm just making assumptions here, but hadn't quite got to that place where they obviously are now. But you saw that, and that's where your job to CNN 
very much took you and you expanded that role. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that visionary bit because um, you kind of, it is that ability to kind of look and see what, what something means for the yeah. future and then to capitalise on it that you've seemed very good at. So I had to, it was actually, it predated the BBC. I had two, um, or BBC World News in particular, I had two moments where I worked in two countries that were going through huge technology change and my job was transformed. One was I was in Papua New Guinea. I went, I went to work with um, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I went to work with 16 radio stations. And it was uh, 2009, and radio was king there. And then mobile phones, thanks to Digicel, arrived into the country. And it, overnight, it changed how people would, were consuming. And the second that they got on their radio uh, or on their on their mobile phone, they wanted to be on Facebook. So I was working with all these radio stations, and honestly, just as, because I was somebody that had used Facebook, I was like, why don't we set up Facebook pages for all the radio stations? And I had come from a place where, at News Talk and RT, we used text messages from the audience. I was like, well, well, it was so rudimentary, but I bought SIM cards for the radio stations. Like, think about it, it was like a SIM card. I was like, here's your SIM card. It wasn't like a, a te- but that was the text system. But the gateway Yeah, to it was like, huge. and it changed dramatically. And the other opportunity I also had was through the BBC as well, was I was in, uh, I saw the change in in Myanmar, in Burma, and I went there when there was weekly newspapers and I was working with 100 young people on a radio show, but the third and fourth and fifth time I went back, mobile phones had arrived and censorship had been lifted, and it was in the space of like 18 months, it was a different landscape. And I'm always really interested to see how people get news, and I think the curiosity of a journalist should should extend to how people consume. And I remember having very difficult conversations with some people, especially early on at the BBC and and even at CNN, where people were like, well, it's social media, though. It's not journalism. I was like, it is, because that's how people are getting their news and it's how they're getting their information. And I've always been fascinated with video in particular and watching how, and this is a glamour now, We've, you know, we've grown three digits in our video or, you know, 110% in our video. More and more people are coming to us for video. But the reality is more and more people around the world are spending more time watching video on their phone. And if you had that conversation about people watching Netflix series on their mobile phone two years ago, people would be like, that's no, people Which watch one minute. I watch my Netflix. Like, yeah, me, right? <laughs> but when I started at BBC, or at, even at CNN, there was this concept of like, if it's a mobile video, it's got to be a minute because nobody's going to watch a video f- for more than a minute mobile. Now, that thinking has changed because consumers are like, no, you know what? I'll watch 12 minutes and I'll watch 13 minutes and I'll watch a Christmas movie on my my, my mobile phone now. And I'll watch three episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of similar in a way to the conversation we're having about long-form journalism and digital journalism, that's the idea that someone will stay and dwell on a page and read a piece for 12, 13 minutes, which happened yeah. with a piece that we can talk about later that you did for Glamour. Just talk to me about going, getting sort of um, the little nod from Condé Nast when you were in uh, CNN. Was that, I mean, at that stage, you'd been in that CNN world. You'd kind of, uh, you'd expanded the social media, won awards. So had made a mark, which yeah. is amazing. I mean, and I was the thing about going it, yeah. to New York and if you can make it there, yeah. Samantha, <laughs> you can make it anywhere. Um, uh, but then was it a moment when you sort of knew that Condé Nast were interested so in Anna Winter called me into her office. Anna Winter yeah, called, you. Okay, she called so me into her office, which is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going in, and I didn't know why I was going in, because I knew her, and I'd known her in New York, um, but she was like, come in, come in for a chat. And I remember going to Condé, and she was like, and it was the same day that the editor-in-chief had announced that she was leaving. She said, 
we're going to start searching. The editor-in-chief of Glamour. Oh, Glamour. Yeah. Cindy Levy. And she said, we're going to start looking. I want you to put your hat in the ring. And I remember getting into a car and leaving. So just to lay it out for you, One World Trade Center is down at the very bottom of the island of New York. And I got into the car and I was a little bit stunned in the meeting. And, you know, she, and it was like, we want to take Glamour into this new world and we'd love your experience. And we like... We want you to put your hat in the ring, right? And I got in the car and I was going back up to CNN, which is kind of midtown, near Central Park, 57th. And on, on the drive up, I called my best friend in New York, Orla, and I was like, oh, now I want this. Like, I want this. And so there was no moment where I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna half-heartedly go for this. Like when, that for me was like, I'm fully putting my hat in this ring because the second the opportunity was there. I was like, I really want this. And I know, and I think I could be good at it. So that there was a moment of like, you know, it's a little bit of like, let's just grab it and go for it. But over the next couple of weeks, I locked my way, myself away in my apartment, I think um, the following week or the weekend. And I honestly, I came up with like a 10 page proposal and I wrote a memo and I was like, I spent a lot of time looking at Glamour and what it's done. And I, I made a plan for the future. And I looked at what I wanted to do, how I wanted to grow it, what I thought about the audience, where I thought the opportunity was. I fully locked myself away for about two weekends. And then I spent, you know, the following couple of weeks with, I'm sure, everybody else that was in the mix meeting all of the executives at Conde and um, laying out what I would like to do with Glamour. Can we just go back a little bit to that meeting with Anna Winter? Yeah. <laughs> I just can't help thinking about Devil Wears Prada. And was there any bit of you that was kind of slightly terrified? No, because I knew her already. I knew her. I knew her in New York. I met. Me I, I had met yeah, I'd met her at my friend's wedding, and and she was amazing. And I'd knew, known her in New York, so I've never had that. I've never intimidated is not the wrong word because I, I I'm in awe of her. I think yeah. she's amazing. She's my boss now, and I think she like you couldn't ask for somebody better to like teach you the in terms of a mentor. Yeah. In terms of mentor, she's also very smart in terms of like she has her uh, always in every shape in terms of New York media as her eye on the pulse of like who's doing what over there, what they're doing is interesting. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a moment where I walked out of that office. I was like, oh my God, this could be something I really want. And you know when you really want something, then you're vulnerable. Because if you really want something, then you're hurt if like you put all the effort into it and you don't get it. And I think that was the part for me that was like, I really want this now. And I'm going to try my very best to get it. And it was, I'm sure, a very competitive race, right? Exactly. And so was there a call or, or an email or how did the, was, how did it, they tell you that you'd actually got the job as editor-in-chief of Glamour? It was a call. Magazine? Yeah, it was a call. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Jesus. I think I was in shock. Like, I, yeah, I was, there was a call. And it had been, obviously, months in, in the process of, like, working towards and having the conversations and everything. And then when we got, uh, when I got the call, I think I was in shock. I went, to, I went to the Barry Hotel with two of my friends, which is this beautiful hotel in New York. And the Barry Hotel? The Barry Hotel. Oh, yeah. The Barry, okay. Yeah, I thought it was the, Barry... the hotel called the Barry Hotel. No, yeah, I know, yeah, no, the Barry Hotel. <laughs> and they bought me champagne, and I just sat there, and I just was like, I couldn't even drink it, because I was like, I'm terrified, and I'm in shock, and it's scary, and it's all of the things. But um, I think it became, it honestly became real when, when the announcement went out, which was... Um, first week of January so over Christmas I had it you know everybody a couple of people knew obviously I told my parents um everybody knew and so we were making the announcement I think 
the like the second week back from Christmas holidays or whatever. And and it was big news here, and people were so delighted. It I was know, really, it was like, so it lovely. To all of it us, was you know so I mean? lovely. <laughs> it was so funny because um, you get you get like the your like the my press team at Conde will do a roundup of um, you know the coverage or whatever, and they'll send it to you. And so the New York Times headline was like digital first native takes publishing and everybody came in their own way but it's so funny even when it got to Ireland so it was like uh, the Irish press were like Irish girl did good and then when you got to like the, the evening echo or Cork there was like Cork girl did it so it like was, to, was there a Ballancolic yeah there was definitely it was like like muscular leader like yeah Ballancolic girl did good so my the press team in in Candy in New York were like this is hilarious because they were going through every, all of the headlines and they were like Depending on who it was, it was like fully taking ownership so for it. And it, and I was loving it, especially when it got down, yeah, when it got down to like the cork part. But the funny thing about it is like the, my t- parents did not care about the New York Times. Like they don't care about that. They don't care that that was the announcement. Like they care about when like they run around if I'm in the Irish Times or like the Late Late Show. They That's when they get that's excited. So really made that's it, the one that they can really get out there. They don't care. They don't, I do a lot of morning TV in America, the Today Show, which is like watched by like hundreds of millions of people every month. They don't care about that. I send them clips. They're like, oh, yeah, that looks lovely. Great. But it, they care about the, the, no. the Irish media so much. Listen, tell us about your first day in the job. Um, yeah. Because that is, and you've been there, and obviously, you know, Anna Winter, so it's not like, not like any of us just walking in yeah. there. But at the same time, you're walking into this huge job that mm-hmm. you know the pressure is on for you to transform this iconic yeah. brand you know that has been there for a long time which we can talk about too what was the first day like so the first day was fun because bear in mind if you think about it right this is me walking into a publishing giant and uh, I had spent all of my years in my career in newsrooms right so they're different right they're different they're um and I walked in and I, I had already met the team the day of the announcement so I, it was a lot of meetings with the executive team my executive editor my digital editor, it was meeting some people. And then there was this moment on my first day where I was fully out of my comfort zone. And it was when my assistant turned around, she said, you've got to go to the fashion floor for the run through. And I honestly said, what's a run through? And for those of you who have watched Devil Wears Prada, you will understand the run through is that moment where they're all in the room and they're talking about the color of the scarf. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so, blue, yeah, it it's blue or yeah. whatever. So I walked up to the fashion floor on 39 and it was the stylist for the, the shoot. We, they were talking about the April cover. It was the stylist. It was like four of my fashion team. It was the photographer, the creative director. And in the room, just to set the scene, there's like three racks of clothes. There's like four mood boards. I have pictures of the stars that are going to be on the cover. But this is, I worked in newsrooms, right? Like I, this was not my comfort zone. So I, I did what the only thing I could do, which every Irish girl would do in this situation, when they started pulling clothes out from the rails, I said, how much is it? And they looked at me and honestly, I don't know if they'd ever been asked that question in a run through. And it's kind of a running joke now, a little bit of Conde, because every time there is a run through of my team compared to other editors, they now have known, they know that they come in and every time they have actual post-it notes with the price of every clothes on, 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 um, on the clothes. Because honestly, it's a, it's a question I would ask as a person. And I had to be in that room and not think of like, oh, I'm the new editor-in-chief. I literally walked into that room and I was like, what would I ask if I was like looking at this clothes, if I was looking at this thing on the cover of April of Glamour? And I'd probably go, oh, that's really pretty. And the second question I would be like, 
how much is it? Can I buy it? Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, the post-it notes. Um, tell us about Glamour because people might hear the name and people who maybe haven't read it or it's, it's a very American institution. Yeah. But it's it's um, quite a groundbreaking publication. So when you were squirreling yourself away and yeah. finding out all about it and then looking at what it, where you wanted to take it, what did you discover and, and did you have a clear vision of it's what you It's amazing. So it's been around for 80 years next year. So it'll be the 80th anniversary next year. So it was first published in 1939 mm-hmm. and it was... When I started reading about it, it, you know, Ruth Whitney, who, if you haven't read about her, is the the most amazing American editor-in-chief that's ever been around. She she was one of the first editors of it. But one of the things that struck me when I started reading about Glamour, first of all, in the 40s, in the 40s in America, its tagline on the magazine was for the girl with a job. And that was just... Mind-blowing, I love it. It's just immediately (laughs) appealed to me. I was like, oh, yeah, go Glamour. Like, for the girl with a job, or for for the woman with a job, not even. Um, For the woman with a job. And I was like, thinking about how progressive that was. Then if you dig into the history, like, it was the first place to ever write about sexual harassment. It did a lot of conversation around Roe v. Wade back in the 90s. It was in the 60s. In the 60s, it was the first magazine in America to ever, fashion magazine to ever put a black woman on the cover. Amazing. And I still have conversations with that woman. She's still very close to Glamour and the brand, which I love. It was the first place to ever publish Andy Warhol. It has all of these amazing firsts. And I think what's interesting for me, I think sometimes people can be, and I've seen it, I've seen it since I started this role, can be dismissive of women's titles. But the reality is, if you actually scratch the surface, women's magazines, women's brands have done not only amazing journalism, but have been groundbreaking in starting conversations. One of the things that Glamour did a lot about in the 80s and 70s was talk about domestic violence when nobody else was talking about it. Um, it's always had its foot in fashion and beauty, right? And it's, it's always been kind of more the accessible contemporary brand for that. But when you think about the things that the conversations it's had around women and their life, um, it's been really, really groundbreaking. Because I've heard you mention service journalism, mm. which is not a phrase I've actually heard I know. before. But it's really interesting to use those words with, with a women's title. Because like you say, pushing boundaries, changing the kind of um, landscape for women, uh, provoking people into kind of getting into a new uh, way of thinking around women's issues. Yeah, so and that's very much what Glamour was about. Completely. And is about. I've been thinking about the service journalism we've been doing this year. So we've done a lot around fertility. And honestly, I'm having those conversations because that's the conversations that my the women in my age group are having. Um, so we've done a lot of service journalism around fertility and wellness we've we've done some controversial stuff around gun ownership amongst women in America and really dug into that Um, and those women's lifestyle both here in Ireland and in America have always done this service journalism for women that can can honestly in mass publications or mass media often be overlooked Absolutely. So let's talk about two things that um, in your in your it's not even a year yet. It's amazing. So the first one uh, is the Women of the Year awards that you kind of jazzed up and transformed. Tell us about that, because I have to say the other thing is that, you know, a lot of very, very well-known people. We'll get to that in the end. But like it's kind of like your friends and the people that you're working with are are names that we would. They're amazing. I mean, Women of the Year for me was just. Okay, so Women of the Year has been around for 26 years. It's always, it's honestly, it's it's a huge institution and it's a very worthy thing that Glamour has done. And it's about celebrating the women that have made a difference um, in the year. And I started planning that in February. So if you think about it, I got into the job at the end of January. And I honestly, the planning starts in February. For me, I also, with Women of the Year this year, wanted not to just make it about the awards 
um, but really make it like, how do I get the readers and viewers and people who watch our videos and read the magazine and read us online? How do I get them involved? So we ended up making it a three day event, right? Um, so we started the first day uh, and we had experiences where all these women bought tickets and they got to vintage shop with Patricia Field or they got to work out. Second day was a summit where I think we packed maybe about eight, nine hundred young women um, into uh, the room in in Manhattan, in New York, where they had all this pro. It, for me, it felt like it was the, what we do in the magazine and in digital every day brought to life in a summit. So we had women entrepreneurs come to talk. We had some of the winners come. Um, we had Halsey came and gave an amazing six minute poem. Um, Lily Reinhardt, who's quite well known there, came and talked about um, body image. Ashley Graham was on stage. It was great. It was amazing. And then the night itself is is um, the culmination of what we'd been planning for, for honestly, for months. And it's the awards. So this year we gave we had eight women in groups that we gave awards to. And it was everybody from people you've heard before people um, to people you've never heard of. So Viola Davis and Chrissy Teigen um, won an award. Kamala Harris, who's a senator in the U.S., won an award. Brilliant woman. Amazing. And then we had groups that, honestly, these groups did so much. So we had the Larry Nassau survivors, the act, uh, the... Uh, this is the gymnast coach. The gymnast, yeah. So the women um, that survived, he abused 300 women. And the story this year was that not only did these young women, and so many of them were so young, stand up, but it was a female prosecutor, a female detective... And it was a female judge, Judge Aquilina, that actually heard them. So as a group, we wanted to honor them. That was really important to us. The Parkland girls who were amazing. And then there was a couple of people that you mightn't have heard of before, but we, for me and my team were so special. So a 97-year-old park ranger called Betty Soskin who brought the house down. Like <laughs> She's seen everything. Like She's 97. And Manal Al-Sharif, who's the Saudi Arabian woman who, um, who started the Saudi... A movement of women to drive, which obviously they've been allowed this year, but she she'd been imprisoned and exiled. She's in Australia, and you know she she was really the woman behind this movement. Um, so we got to not only like honor these women, but we had this amazing event, and I can't even describe like some of the <laughs> things backstage. I was like, I might just like pinch me in moments. My surprise was I brought Hillary Clinton on stage, as and you do, yeah, as yeah. Cash just hills me and hills. Um, so no, I don't call her that, not to <laughs> really her face at least. Yeah, Jesus, um, yeah. Um, so we wanted to mark that Women of the Year was on November twelfth. Uh, the award ceremony and we were coming the of the back as we were planning this we we're coming the back we knew we knew November 8th was going to be this huge moment for women in the midterms we didn't know how many women were going to win but we knew that a record number of women were uh, running and I was like we need to mark this and we started talking my executive editor and I started talking and we were like who would be a good person to like mark this and we're like what I mean, somebody that's done a lot with elections and she's run a lot and she knows about running. So we had, we started having conversations with Hillary's team. Um, but we kept it, we didn't honestly tell most of the staff. Like we kept it very secret and we had that mo- And so she didn't, she wasn't on the program anywhere. Nobody <laughs> knew it was going to happen. And I remember, so I left my seat, you know, you know, 15 minutes into the awards ceremony because I had to go and meet... Um, I'd met her before very briefly, but meet her in the green room and be backstage. So backstage at Women of the Year, which is a tiny little area, there's myself and HRC 
and John Legend, Hills. yeah, oh, Hills. John Legend, John Legend is there, and he's getting nervous because he's about to award Chrissy Teigen her award. Me and Hillary are chatting, and just you have these moments where you're just like, "This is a little mad." Like this is you, like you feel like you're having out of body experience, and you're like floating away, and you go, "Remember this for the memoirs." Like you just have that moment, and you're like, "Oh my god, this is a bit crazy." Like, and also the fact for me, it was it was my event. It was my like big night. It was like I got on that stage, and I, in, you know. It had been like so many months of planning and to get up there and surprise everybody with Hillary and just, just, it was just moments all of that weekend that I was like, this is like pinch me, yeah. pinch me time. And it was, it was, it was mad. Amazing. And just going back to the journalism in and what you're tr- going to do, because there's a big announcement of um, di- uh, Glamour going mm-hmm. digital with a couple of special yeah. print um, issues, which we'll talk about in a sec. But um, the heart story, mm-hmm. which has now gone on to become a podcast, which mm-hmm. is launching this w- next week. Tell us about that. And kind of, I suppose that really encapsulates what you're doing with Glamour because it started off as a print story so mm-hmm. people might not be familiar maybe you can just fill us in about the heart so this was a story um, that really interested I have a morning meeting which I uh, I brought from my broadcast world where it's like a morning editorial meeting everybody comes in what are we doing today what, what time are we is doing that this actually, week you don't mind me asking you know what <laughs> it's early enough it moves sometimes depending on the day like I was, I came from a place where it would be happening at 7.30 or 8 in the publishing world it needs to happen a little later um, like nine o'clock. Okay. Um, but uh, so there's this story. It was kind of in the news in March, very, very briefly in American news. It was the story of a white lesbian couple and their six adopted black kids, and a, a tragedy of of all sorts where it, it emerged that they drove the kids in the car off um, a cliff in Washington, and it probably made national news for like. It was like on it, on it for half a day, maybe two days, and people were like, "Wait, what happened there?" But then Donald Trump said something, so everybody else moved on Looked in the news, away right? Him, yeah. But my team didn't, in particular, my books editor and my features director were really interested in the story, and we talked about it in this meeting, and we were like, "Okay, this is an opportunity. This is a story about two women and their adoptive kids. We don't know exactly what happened." There's so many unanswered stories, um, and we want to get to the bottom of it, and also because. In the Facebook world that we live in, the, this family lived a very, very public, Facebookly ideal world where all the kids were put out in photos all the time. They were lined up. Um, one of the kids, actually, you may know from a viral I- image of a police officer hugging a black kid, which says free hugs. That was one of the children. Yes, yeah. it's, it's so anyway, so we, we sent an, a, a reporter on it. And uh, because I come from radio background, Uh, We sent a reporter to do a print story on it. But when we sent that reporter, I said, get her to get audio. Just just when she's interviewed, I just want audio. Really rudimentary. Glamour had never done that before. I was like, let's just get audio as we were doing this story because I think it's, I think it's interesting. And I, I, I just wanted the audio element, not only to look at a transcript of an interview when they came back, but I wanted to look, I wanted to listen to the audio. So we sent, sent a uh, person down for three months. She talked to the neighbours, talked to families, talked to lots of people. It ended up being a six-page spread in print, and it got a lot of reaction in the US. It ended up being a piece on digital that people spent on average 12 minutes with, which is unheard of. And then because we had the audio that we'd collected... Um, how stuff works, which is like one of the biggest podcast companies in the US, was like we need to tell this story, and it's Glamour's first ever um, narrative podcast. It launches on December fourth, and it 
it, you know what? We don't answer all the questions, but it's really interesting what they uncover in in the family of the story, how they moved between states, how child services had been called, how they had lived this very Facebook-led life, that the reality behind it was obviously something very, very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're interested in, I, I, I think about it, like uh, one of the podcasts I've loved this year is West Cork. West Cork yeah, right. So, oh so even that, so I'm a big podcast yeah. listener. So like when, when we started talking about the story at Glamour, I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, this is, there's something, you know, there's something, there's questions to be asked here. West Cork, I listened to, I think, in one day. In, the same. In, in, I, the I couldn't, same. Like, like, I couldn't put it down. No. Um, and it's interesting, if you think about, like, Glamour's publishing, and these people that started on this story would have traditionally just worked on print, but they worked on something that worked on print yeah. and digital and podcasts. So I'm, I'm so really proud of this So the team is evolving in terms of their skill set, and you're yeah. leading that, that change. It brings us neatly to kind of the recent news about Glamour, which, mm-hmm. in a way, uh, wasn't a big story, in a way, because it, it felt very, like... Uh, like a natural evolution for you, mm-hmm. especially given where you've come from in social media. But you have uh, made a decision to bring Glamour into sort of online only, mostly. So it's kind of, I, I describe How's it as the, digital, yeah. digitally, video, uh, digitally video and socially led, but we're a 360 brand in so much so that events are, are a growing area for us and that print is still an important part of the mm-hmm. package. So we're still going to do Women of the Year in print probably do print a couple of times during um, the year, um, kind of special issues. So it, for me, was to come off a month, a monthly print schedule, which I don't, which, which for investing in our storytelling meant sense for us. And to save those print moments for kind of that coffee book longevity moment to look at how we could increase events. And the reality is every editor, anybody that's in media at the moment, is trying to make the decision of, where and how they place their bets and where their emphasis and how they do that, right? Like, I think in times past, a, a monthly print issue made um, an awful lot of sense for Glamour. But as our digital and our video and our social has grown, I want the print to be something special and um, unique in its own way and not competing with each other, right? Yeah. So the prints, it's their Women of the Year, those be- you know, those photo shoots that work on, uh, in print, or let's say if we do a print issue around power and money, which is a topic I've been fascinated with this this year around the conversation women are having about power and money, that will sit there for four months and not feel like, oh, this feels out of date because it was the January issue yeah. and it's now March. You tell a good story, actually, about um, your own experience with power and money where you were in CNN. <laughs> you had a very good tactic about figuring out how to get your so, work. I, so, okay, so I went to CNN from, um, from the BBC and... Um, Media is paid differently in 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 America than in London or in Dublin, right? And I don't think I realized in my first round of negotiations how much I should have asked for more. And I say this as somebody that you know I run a women's title. Like my whole day is telling women to ask for more, right? <laughs> um, but what I did was it was my contract negotiations were coming up, and I used this as the as. I used this as my editor's letter for my the money issue. I talked about it a little bit. Um, and it, it, it ended up spinning off a story for us called the Salary Whisper Network, where we talk to women about why you need to know what other people in your vicinity or world, not just women, but men, are earning in order to know your value. So for me at CNN, I went into my negotiations with the tactic, which was I picked off a couple of lovely guys <laughs> that worked at either the same level or the level I was reaching for at CNN. Um, 
and I would take them out separately and I would get them a little drunk and I would tell them if they told me how much they earned, I would tell them how much I earned. And honestly, what it helped me was, it's funny and I did get them drunk and some people (laughs) did want to tell me and then other people didn't. But what I learned from that experience is that you need to know what other people around you are getting paid, either in your company or your industry, in order to feel emboldened to go in and ask for your worth. So when I went in to negotiate, I asked for a number that I think if I hadn't have known might have seemed like a jump. But the fact that I knew what other people were getting paid at that level was like, well, like, this is just normal. Um, so, yeah, get, get, get your colleagues drunk. <laughs> we only have a little bit more time, but a couple of things. The pressure on you, it's a big, big job. And Condé Nast is a huge um, public, publishing uh, firm. The commercial pressure there, mm. because it's not just about you widening the platform, doing these things for the sake of it. It's a money making. Yeah. It's just how are you with that aspect of it and how are things working out that way? Revenue models mm-hmm. and different um you know, using your imagination for those things as well. So I always say I, and, and most people I admire in the business, have an editorial heart and a head for business. So I'm always a very aware of like, where is, how are we diversifying our revenue? Now, it's not my ultimate job. Like there's publishers and there's, they're called chief business officers at, at Condé. And their job is to go and like sign the contracts and get the sales. But my job as an editor is to be open to the, having the conversations about what does branded content look like on Glamour? What does, if we go out and we do, like, I went to the sales team and I say, I'm really interested in money. Um, I think this is something that you should be, we're going to do a lot of content around money. Why don't you go and talk to banks? And why don't you talk to <laughs> financial institutions? And why don't you talk to people that wouldn't necessarily have come to Glamour before? Because a lot of Glamour's advertising in the past was very fashion and beauty driven. But why can't we get, one of our biggest sponsors of Women of the Year this year was Mercedes, who have never, ever come anywhere near Glamour before. They came because of some of the amazing content we've been doing this year. So I've been having a very open conversation with the revenue side about, here's the content areas we're going for. I'm, as an editor, open um, to doing different types of um, diversifying our revenue in ways that doesn't um, impact, doesn't feel icky for our editorial. So that's really important as well. So that's why I said the editorial heart and the business head. Um, When we sold tickets to Women of the Year Summit, we made made money from that. We've never done that before. So for me, it's always like I'm, I always think about it this way. And I think um, I've always worked in journalism. I've always worked in media. I want to keep making money so I can keep telling the stories I care about. So I'm as interested about Glamour making money and continuing to grow in its Mm. revenue because then I get to tell more heart stories. I get to tell more things that I care about. And honestly, that's what like makes me get up in the morning because I get to tell okay. the stories. And quickly, can we talk about all your famous friends? Oh, yeah, go on. Because you know a lot. <laughs> come on, come, you were at the Clooney's wedding. I know, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, give us some other New York Oscar. Um, what is that I like? I mean, being mates with these people who we all know. So it was we fun. think we know so well. It was, so I knew Amal before she um, met George. And so we met at a, a, a dinner in London. And so it was very nice when she introduced me to her boyfriend and it was George Clooney so that was great that wedding was amazing I had just started at CNN and the funny thing about that was I'd started at CNN and it was a small wedding If you like it didn't seem like a small wedding because half the world's paparazzi was there but like Mal had 40 people including her family there and George had 40 people including his family and it was a whole weekend but I had just started at CNN and I t- didn't tell my bosses where I was going I said I need four days off I'm going to an event in Europe I, didn't, I said an event I think and I remember going, I don't want to tell them because it's also, it's not my business to tell anybody else. Um, it's not, it's not my wedding to tell. 
And so I told my bosses that I was going and I thought I was safe um, because every time we were staying in um, the Cipriani Hotel, I think it was, in, in Venice, and we, we'd taken over the whole hotel. And every time I'd left, on, so I'd gone there on the fr- Thursday and the Friday, every time I left the, the, the hotel to go somewhere, all the paparazzi boats were there at this stage. And every time I went to get off the hotel, they would like lift up their lenses and realize I was nobody and put them back down. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm getting away with this. But on the actual day of the wedding, Bill Murray had been told he was going to be my wingman. So he was holding my dress as we were getting like into Bill the boat. Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray, Bill Murray. He's my wingman. Bill man. Murray. He was going to be the my actor. wingman. Yeah. Just mention Bill Murray as if like, go on. Just catch Bill. Bill was going to be Ground my wingman. Day, Bill yeah. Murray. He was going to be, he was, told, he was being told he was my wingman for the wedding. And basically, as we were getting onto the boat to go to the wedding venue, he was holding my dress. And I realized at that very moment, I was not going to get away with it. Because when the, the picture, when the, photo, the paparazzi put up their lenses, they saw Bill Murray and they didn't care who was with him, but they were not going to stop snapping. <sighs> And so my bosses at CNN sent me the clip and, and uh, they were like, oh, at an event, are we? So that was kind of fun because that was like a fun intro. And sort of on that, I always imagine working in New York and being in that world that you're in, mm-hmm. World Trade Center, Conde Nast, and a winter there watching you or every yeah. move. The pressure on you as a woman, right, in yeah. terms of makeup, hair, wearing the latest clothes, yeah. as, a, as the editor of Glamour magazine. Is that crazy or do you manage to navigate that and do your own thing? Because you look amazing today in this beautiful pink dress, which I don't know, I wouldn't know enough to know what designer it is, but I'm sure Sorry it's Birch, thank you. No, very yeah. fancy, it's gorgeous. But you know, you, you're, what I loved about hearing you talk today and, and talking you, to you on the podcast now, you have managed to steer this thing of being very authentic, mm. very, being very much melancholic yeah. and New York and London and all the things that make up that global kind of um, vision that you have for, for your job. But at the same time, you could try and fit in. You yeah. could say, oh, I have to become very New York, yeah. which I don't think you've done. How have you kind of managed that? So it's interesting because I, de- I definitely thought like I would take a lot of risks with my fashion in newsrooms and I'd be like very out there in newsrooms. And I think I was like the coolest person <laughs> in the newsroom with like a feather skirt or something. And then I walked into Condé Nast and I was like, I'm never going to be the best dressed person here. So first of all, I need to understand that. Like I'm never <laughs> We're going to be the best dressed person in that building like they're like sometimes I'm in the lifts with people and I'm like your outfit is amazing um so there are days where I'm like yeah fully make an effort it definitely made a lot of effort like in the first couple of weeks but then there's days I, I like I'm like my hair scraped up I've no makeup on I just need to get in and do my job yeah and I think I, I couldn't spend my whole life working worrying about what Anna Winter thought about my shoes because I'm actually more I'm more worried about what she thinks about my content than like what I'm wearing so I definitely feel like you there there is definitely in the immediate you're like oh my god I need to look like amazing every day now I'm just like no it's just like yeah there's definitely been times where my team are like god she could put on she could do it put on a bit of mascara or something like yeah I'm so glad to hear that (laughs) what's next for you Samantha because this job only you're not even a year in so much ahead of you and I can just tell so many plans and ideas. Where do you see the next while panning out and, and what's your... So plan? for me, I think it's like that I, I'm really excited about next year because it's the transformation of the brand. So it's like doing all the things I want to do, continuing to tell the stories. I think your first year in any job, you're just constantly a bit uncomfortable. I think my second year, I'd like to like, okay, now I've got the swing of things. I know where the toilets are. I know where, where I'm going. I know how Women of the Year comes together and... How do I continue to build on that? And I just, um, I just want to continue growing. And I'm loving, I'm loving a glamour to being able to tell stories with, to with women. I think I've spent more time this year, 
out of the day to day of like breaking news and like sitting with women and having conversations and sitting across from you here, you know, having this conversation. I think what I've really enjoyed at Glamour is not being out of the 24 seven day to day of news and being able to like sit with somebody for a couple of hours and hear a woman's story and. And I'm really enjoying that part of it. And speaking of women's stories, just finally, when you were looking from afar, because I presume you were in New York when repeal was happening and mm. all that, were you kind of, as a, as a sort of person who, yeah. who's an activist in her own way, was that exciting to watch? Do you know what was really exciting for me? I had never in any job I'd w- written in the past been able to write about my opinion. And I wrote in the September issue of Glamour about repeal the 8th. And I, first of all, loved watching what was going on. I was so proud of my country. I was so proud of watching all of uh, the women of every generation and the men that were supporting them get behind it. And that was really important. I wrote my editor's letter about repeal. First of all, I had to explain to my team, which was interesting, about the history of women's reproductive rights in Ireland. So that was interesting because they didn't... It was interesting as I talked to my team to understand how little that they knew about it, right? And I suppose they're not in Ireland. They didn't know. One thing that I was not surprised about, but kind of... When I wrote my editor's letter, uh, the people that disliked it the most <laughs> were a certain generation of Irish American women. Women, right. and what I mean by that is there are definite. They were the ones that wrote me letters that were not happy. That, that I did not represent our, their Ireland. Um, there are definitely a generation of Irish American. Not all of them, but there are certain pockets of Irish America that left in the 30s or the 40s or they're hearing stories about the Ireland that was and they hold on to that concept of it and uh, abortion being illegal was one of them. So uh, honestly, I was uh, kind of surprised it wasn't less, it was less celebrated than it was amongst Irish Americans. And I do think because older generations of Irish Americans hold on to this Ireland of the past, whether it be like Ireland was, Ireland was, being the first country to like have a referendum on gay marriage and in New York they were barely leaving gay men in the St. Patrick's Day parade and that for me was that for me is really interesting to watch in 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 America but I couldn't be prouder of my country with repeal with gay marriage it it makes me get you get very very proudful as a young Irish immigrant to watch those that progress happening at home. Well, listen, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. I'm so delighted to hear you. You're, you f- I find you, and the word is bandied around, but you are very inspiring. <laughs> oh, thank because you. of that way that you look at the world and you see what's next and you're kind of telling people and bringing people along with you. And I love how you're expanding the skills of your team and you're growing that into such an exciting way. So dying to listen to the podcast. Thank it's you. called Broken Hearts. Broken Hearts. It's out yeah. next week. And thank, thank you. you very much, Thanks, Samantha Martin. Barry. Thank you so much. It's lovely to chat to you. And that's all we have time for today. I really enjoyed talking to Samantha Barry and thank you very much to her for coming on the Women's Podcast. And just a reminder that Glamour's new podcast series, Broken Heart, which does sound really interesting, begins on December 8th. Remember, you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's one was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 